everyone. Welcome. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. I'm glad you can join us tonight again for our program. And it's going to be a a packed program. Um, We have a lot to cover. Um, I hope everyone out there had a safe holiday weekend as the state has begun to reopen slowly. And we're all out there still trying to maintain our social distancing and maybe increasing our, our bubble a little bit and including a few more people in safely and slowly. And we're going to continue with that same topic. We are going to talk about what that means for our healthcare system and what that means for us to begin reopening and how we provide service for, services for you safely within our surgical services, our ancillary services, our medical group. We're also going to talk a little bit more about our virtual care and where we're going with that. We're going to focus a bit on COVID testing and maybe tap a little bit into the plasma therapy that Trinity Health of New England has been part of, which we're very excited about. And the best person I could think of to talk to us about that is Dr. Syed Hussein, who is our Senior Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer of Trinity Health of New England. Hi, Doc. Hi, Robin. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm honored to be here. I'm honored to have you. You are a very busy man. And so I want the the audience to understand a little bit about you and what your role is with us, with Trinity Health of New England. Do you mind expanding on that a little? Sure. Happy to do so. So I'm an internist by training. So I did my residency in internal medicine. I moved to the region to take on this new role a little under two years ago. And it's been a fascinating journey. Um, As regional chief clinical officer, I'm responsible for medical staff, for medical governance, for clinical quality, for patient safety, for regulatory, for graduate medical education. Mm -hmm. And I also happen to be the incident commander for the region um, for the current pandemic. So a number of hats, but um, that's in a nutshell, that should tell you a little bit about me. It, it's incredible to have the leadership that we have. You know, I've, I've mentioned this a few times as we have been doing the podcast and the, the radio show over the last couple of months. But, you know, I've been part of St. Mary's for a long, long time. And I can't imagine not being part of a larger system such as Trinity Health. And what it's provided for us locally, regionally. So, you know, before we maybe get into everything, what do you think about maybe talking about what that means for us to be part of such a large system? It's incredible the support we get. Absolutely. And it's never been more apparent, Robin, than the current, um, during the current pandemic of the support that we've received from Trinity Health, which is one of the largest faith-based organizations in the United States. Uh, a presence, they have a presence in over 22 states. Um, and that brings um, a lot of advantages that we're able to uh, benefit from in, in this region. But before I talk about Trinity, I do want to give a shout out to the incredible team, incredible hospital teams across the region, across our five hospitals, St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, St. Mary's in Waterbury, Johnson Memorial in Stafford Springs, Mount Sinai also falling um, in Connecticut, which is their rehab hospital, and Mercy Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. And our incredible physicians, nursing staff, techs, everybody on the front lines who truly have done such a tremendous job, and they inspire me every single day. Now, going back to your earlier comment on Trinity, 
Um, whether it has been ventilators, whether it's been PPE, which is personal protective equipment that your listeners by now should be uh, pretty familiar with, whether it's masks, <laughs> specialized type of masks such as N95s, surgical gowns, gloves, you name it. We've, we've been blessed to be a part of this national healthcare system that has such a robust uh, supply chain. It's incredible. I've been on calls, um, which have been pretty unique. We've been on calls um, regionally, but also nationally. And nationally, there's a whole um, system um, where our mothership is in in Livonia, Michigan, where um, there's all these different nuances within this system. And one of them is the Physician Outreach Committee, which is led by um, Doug Rich and Sandy Hessen. We're able to connect with other um, liaisons and physician relations consultants across the country. And during this time, having colleagues just at our level across the country and talking about the challenges that we face as a team and how we can help our physicians has been an incredible support. I would not have had that without this system. That's right. That's a great point. So one of the things that attracted me to Trinity Health a couple of years ago was the very uh, concept that you just um, uh, mentioned, uh, Robin, and that's the ability, even though this is such a large organization with over a 100,000 colleagues across the country, the ability to get front to hear folks from the front line and make sure they're involved in decision-making processes. So Trinity Health has what is known as clinical excellence councils, and whether it's behavioral health, whether it's pulmonary critical care, whether it's general surgery, orthopedics, those councils consist of colleagues, nurses, physicians, leaders from across our enterprise who basically make the decisions that impact us, whether it's implementation of new guidelines, whether it's a new electronic medical record, which would actually be the same medical record, believe it or not, Robin, the only system in the country to do this, which is historic, one medical record across Trinity Health, across 22 states, and the ambulatory footprint, which which is basically what I believe folks had in mind many years ago when electronic medical records were rolled out. But um, it hasn't really worked out that way. As we know, it's not seamless, but right. this would enable it to be seamless. Just so and in, in terms of the yeah. pandemic, I would mm-hmm. like to mention that we have daily calls, incident command center calls with system office, um, our corporate headquarters uh, based out of Livonia, Michigan. And that enables us to, to be able to escalate and arc up any concerns, any issues that we may face at any of our hospitals uh, within Trinity Health of New England. And but because of that mechanism, which includes the weekend, we're able to um, get solutions to, to any barriers or any uh, concerns we may have. You know, if this happened 10 years ago and the hospitals were more independent, we would have been figuring out a lot of it on our own with maybe some help from, you know, from the Connecticut Hospital Association and, of course, the CDC. But we would not have had the system or the network of hospitals and leadership to come together as a team to provide the resources and the guidance locally. And that's huge. It is. Absolutely. It's, for us, it's been a huge uh, advantage and a benefit. And I can tell you it not only applies to PPE and ventilators, but even things such as staffing. So there's a staffing pool, a float pool that Trinity Health put together 
to deploy, it consists of colleagues, includes nurses and other key individuals that actually can go to hospitals which are facing a surge and be able to have that kind of support is incredible. Yeah, that's it. I know, I know they had reached out to all of us with a survey, which, you know, I wholeheartedly filled out and, you know, gave my level of where I could be of assistance. And, you know, they were going to use us in the command centers and for testing. And, you know, to be able to have that resource and that team where everybody works as one, you mentioned all the hospitals that are part of our system locally. And I can't tell you how it's been, it makes you feel like a larger family. You know, I, I'm dealing with Mercy, St. Francis, Mount Sinai, and Johnson almost every day. And that's a great thing because it makes us feel like one big family. Absolutely. And, and during this pandemic, and even before that, we've been able to leverage resources that may exist at one hospital and not the other, whether it's mm. physician resources, nurses, et cetera. We've been able to share best practices as a result and also um, give our uh, leaders and our uh, colleagues in the region a national voice. So if there's a best practice that, say, came up at St. Mary's, and there have been over the years, so many of them, they actually will get arced up uh, to to our corporate headquarters and actually be um, uh, noticed and and, um, cascaded across the enterprise, which is a great recognition. I, you know, you mentioned something, you know, being arced up and bringing it to a higher level. I don't think I've ever felt more supported on any, at any point in my career. And I think as we became part of Trinity Health, I have been able to arc up to leadership at every level, ideas or thoughts, and maybe they may not be perfect, but they're listened to. And some work, some don't, but they listen to you and they make you feel credible. That's absolutely correct. And the open door policy exists not only at our hospital level, but also at the regional level and system office. And I've been able to get in touch with folks um, anytime that I've required any assistance and any help. And it's been, it's been a fantastic experience. And at the end of the day, it enables us to provide that transforming healing presence in the community and enables us to be able to keep our doors open and, and serve our patients and our community. And that's the most important thing is that the heart and soul of everything, it's the patient and the people that are providing the care for those patients. That's right. So, you know, we take all of that, and I think that has been the guiding principle for us, Trinity Health and Trinity Health of New England, to be able to now start to speak about as we reopen our services after COVID. So taking everything that we have and everything that we're being taught. I had Dr. Evie on the phone on the the show a couple of weeks ago, our our president, and he spoke of us as we are reopening our services. So I want to go to that. You know, now that we're two weeks since we've started back with our surgeries, and and what does that look like now? Sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. But let me take a step back, and you know, when this pandemic is all done and over with, when we're looking back for lessons learned. One of the things, one of the glaring things I believe will come up is how we weren't able to provide care, how folks were scared during the pandemic, understandably so, and stayed home when they actually should have come to the hospital for to seek medical attention. And we see this. Um, if you compare at Trinity Health of New England, uh, pre-pandemic last year compared to the same period this year during the pandemic, 
we have seen a tremendous drop, over 50% drop in some of the acute medical conditions which require urgent um, attention. And part of the reason why it's important for us to make sure we reach out to the community is they need to be aware, folks need to be aware that Trinity Health of New England takes safety very, very seriously. We are very proud that St. Mary's Hospital and St. Francis Hospital have a CMS four-star rating. CMS is Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, the largest insurance uh, provider in the country run by the U.S. government. And they rate hospitals from one star, which is the lowest, to five star, which is the highest. And they look at patient experience, quality indicators, a whole bunch of um, metrics that go into the calculation. So having that recognition is a testament to all the, uh, you know, focus on patient safety and quality that we have. And that goes into making sure that we're ready to take care of patients, even in the midst of a pandemic. And there are a number of measures that Trinity Health of New England has taken at each of its hospitals to ensure that um, we have COVID-free zones, we have all masked environments, we ensure that our PPE supplies, our medication supplies are up to par. Um, We offer pre-procedure testing, drive-through testing for surgical patients. It's mandatory. Um, And uh, those are some of the things, uh, measures we've taken to ensure that there's a safe environment at our hospitals to take care of the community. Those are huge. And, you know, I know Dr. Edie did a commercial regarding that, and uh, we've been running it. We're going to be running it on the station. And it's, it's so important for people to understand that it's not like you just turn on a switch right? There are processes and methods we're going through, methodology we're going through to make it safe. Can you explain a little bit about, because we use these terms lately now, COVID-free zone. How do we identify that? So we ensure that patients, um, especially surgical patients, are tested. And any patient who may have symptoms related to COVID-19 will not be part of that COVID-free zone, will be in a designated cohorted area where we take care of persons under investigation for COVID-19 or those patients that are frankly uh, positive for COVID-19 by testing. And it's so important to ensure that because we have to ensure their state, the safety of themselves and others plus the staff. Absolutely. And in, in addition to that, um, per CDC recommendations, which we follow very closely, um, we also have an all-masked environment. Uh, where mm-hmm. colleagues and patients um, are masked, which will uh, decrease the chances of um, spreading infection because we know COVID-19 spreads from person to person. Um, we also um, are uh, um, adherent to social distancing. It has to be at least six feet distance. Um, and we've, for example, for, for our meetings, we've changed them to make sure that they're virtual meetings. So we we stick to the guidelines and we ensure that people are not put in a position where they won't be able to socially distance themselves. In addition to that, we're also continuing regulations in terms of uh, visitors uh, visiting our uh, hospitals. I understand it's not easy. Um, Having been a patient myself, patients want to see their loved ones. But in order to get around that, we now have virtual capability where families can talk to their patients in real time using FaceTime. We have iPads that are now deployed on units. So we work to make sure that uh, even though it it probably won't be the same, that as a person-to-person meeting, we still want to make sure that 
there is some sort of modality available for patients to be able to stay in touch with their loved ones. You know, and ensure, you know, it, ensure they get the information they need. I had a question the other day from a patient who was uh, getting going to be having joint um, surgery, and they're like, they don't have the classes anymore. So I contacted the team at the hospital and spoke to the PA. I said, we could do these virtually. And they're like, you know, we didn't even think of that. I said, yeah, these patients still need it. You know, call them, see how they feel about doing it virtually. And so now we're even expanding our classes that way so that people could still have access to what they need prior to getting a procedure done. Absolutely. That's a great point. And I think when we look back at this pandemic at Lessons Learned, one of one of the uh, silver linings would be, if you will, uh, the how telehealth, virtual care, and, and how the pandemic has actually served as a catalyst to bring that to our communities, bring that to the hospital so that we're able to leverage it. Um, and as you mentioned, we have classes online, but I'm very excited that we are now able to offer uh, um, appointments for primary mm-hmm. care, starting with beginning with primary care. We will be expanding it to other specialties, um, which actually launched today in real time. So if I'm looking for a primary care appointment, all I need to go- do is go to www.trinityhealthofne, N-E for New England, uh, .org, click on virtual care, and there you go. You'll have options of w- how quickly you want to see a physician. So these modalities have the potential to be uh, game changers in terms of improving access uh, to our communities that we serve, especially our most vulnerable patients. You know, you wouldn't think that patients that are a little bit older would enjoy the virtual care, but I had a physician on the radio with me a few weeks ago, uh, Dr. Clohosi, and, you know, he brought up a point which I thought was really neat. Some of these, the older generation, they are they do all have computers. They are all using computers. Most of them are anyway. And he said it gave him an opportunity as he was speaking with one of his most vulnerable patients to say, Room. you know what take your phone with me show me your bathroom show me your bed show me how you're getting out of bed and it was really neat he was able to see the home environment and kind of do a little assessment of some of the things that he wouldn't be able to do and maybe the patient would have just explained but he visually was able to see certain you know potential hazards in the house it was really a neat conversation he explained with his patient so it opens up a whole new world that's right, absolutely. And the really nice thing about the tool that Trinity Health of New England uses uh, for virtual care, it's very user-friendly, Robin. It doesn't mm-hmm. require downloading an app. It's not cumbersome. There's a simple link that's sent via text. The patient, just before the appointment starts, clicks on the link, and there you go, bingo. And that's how easy yeah, it is. Yeah, it's great. And, and one, of, one of our oldest patients that really enjoys virtual care is actually in her 90s. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. I actually got to see it firsthand yesterday. My husband had his appointment with uh, one of our local cardiologists, and I said, do it virtually. I said, Dr. Kelly, he's going to do it virtually. I want to test it out. I need to know what I'm talking about. And it went incredibly well. You know, the MA called him ahead of time, went over some of the things in his chart, and uh, Dr. Kelly sent him a little text. He clicked on it, and he accepted, and it opened it up right on his phone. It was really, it was easy. It was really easy. 
That's right. And I believe the onus is on us as healthcare providers, as healthcare leaders, to leverage um, virtual care so that it can benefit our communities. And we need to start thinking outside the box of how we deliver care and, and expand access to everybody. Yeah, we've, you know, talking about virtual care, I think, you know, it was definitely something everyone kind of tipped their toes into before COVID. And then as COVID happened, I think we all had to kind of dive in, um, not head first, but feet first and say, okay, here we are. Um, But I think Trinity did an amazing job. I was incredibly surprised as to how well the providers actually latched onto it. They did quite well with it. Even my older guys. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's very user-friendly, and there is um, new data that is coming out which shows high patient um, satisfaction with using virtual care as well. Really? Now, when we look at virtual care and we look at, you know, this is going to be part of what we're doing as we move forward and we're, doing, we're expanding it, how do you see how it's going to change how medicine looks and how our future looks as you see will there be virtual locations will we see physicians that are probably more in one location maybe multi-specialties that are able to work together because you can consolidate i mean i I think it opens up a whole new world for us that's right absolutely and the vision is that um, trinity health of new england will be able to Uh, If a patient desired to see multiple physicians, i.e. primary care doctor, but I also want to see my rheumatologist, but I also want to see my neurologist all at the same time so that they're able to speak together as well and be on the same platform because we are uh, in healthcare pretty siloed if you think about it. And we're guilty of not communicating as much as we should. And that breaks down those silos. So we will, our platform enables the patient to be able to choose something like that. Um, also, wow. if I, if my mother, who is in another state, um, wanted to see a physician, and she got onto this platform, and I wanted to be also there, um, even though I'm not physically there, but part of her appointment, part of the visit, the platform allows you to be able to join the visit and uh, listen in as long as my mother allows it. So there are a lot of benefits to the platform we're using. The uh, vision is to quote-unquote, be hospital at home for patients, and especially Mm -hmm. our most vulnerable patients who um, we will be able to track in real time, whether it's blood pressure monitoring, whether it's their pulse ox, if they're COPD patients, so many tools and leveraging artificial intelligence. Now, I do want to make a note here that um, if a patient needs to be seen physically, we will have that capability as well. But at the same time, there are, you know, visits to the primary care doctor's office that technically could be done virtually, and those include Absolutely. medication refills, for instance. Um, so we, we have to make sure there's a balance, but this will um, really position ourselves um, to be able to take care of the community better. And it puts the control of the visit back. I think the patients feel they don't feel like they're in control. Right. So some patients will do much better. They have that white coat syndrome will do much better if they're in their own home environment and they're having that one on one conversation. And it feels I think it feels I mean, I watched it happen yesterday live with my husband. It 
felt like more of a conversation between him and the provider. And my husband was more comfortable. The physician was focused on him. It was like a true FaceTime. And they really had a great conversation. And he, my husband was more at ease. And he was sharing things I don't think he ever would have had he been sitting in an office and waiting for his appointment. That's right. Absolutely. It cuts down the waiting time to zero. Mm -hmm. Um, It ensures that you can take the call uh, with your provider in your own comfort zone, whether it's home, whether it's your office. Um, And it also enables us as a provider, if there's anything that I need from the patient, whether it's a a picture of a a, a skin lesion, for instance, or if I need an x-ray report or something, the, the patient is able through this platform to be able to send in real time to the doctor as well. So there's that communication angle besides just the, uh, the audio and, and uh, visual um, benefits uh, um, that we are able to offer. And it's important for for the community to know too that the physician that's next to you that's having the appointment with you, especially with our with our Epic system, our electronic health record system, he actually once before he even sends you that link, he has all of your records open and he sees everything from every provider that's within our system that's connected. I mean, you know, doctor was reviewing yesterday a a procedure my husband had done with another provider. They were looking at the results together. I know you had this test. I heard everything was good. Do you need any more information? That's fabulous. I mean, everything is right there at their fingertips. So they're very well informed and ready to go. Absolutely. And that adds to the uh, whole patient experience and, and patient satisfaction component. Definitely. Doc, as we look at as we look at virtual care and, and we we take it to that next level and you know, we talk about bringing in, of course, other specialties. You know, I, I can't help but say I think the other audience for this would be like the audience of my kids' generation. So those my kids are really actually early Gen Xs, but, you know, the Generation X or the millennials out there that are so busy and they utilize our urgent care centers as their platform for their health care needs. This is such an incredible selling point for them to create that relationship with a, a provider. Absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned that, Robin, because we on our task force for virtual care for Trinity Health of New England actually had an external millennial who we ran all the ideas by so that he wouldn't, he, he's not in healthcare. We wanted to be sure he wasn't part of Trinity Health so that we had another set of eyes um, that could take a look at this and critique and, and give us uh, feedback. And he was very impressed with how easy it was to use the virtual care platform for Trinity Health of New England. Um, again, if your listeners are interested, it's simple. It's www.trinityhealthofne.org, virtual care. Awesome. And we will make sure we continue to give that out. And I think it'll be something that I am talking about pretty much for every program that we do. We will be utilizing the virtual care platform as every part of our conversation with physicians that we have on. So I don't think anyone will not know about it. We'll make sure we continue to get it out there. One of the um, other things that you and I talked about yesterday when we talked about educating our community um, of things that are happening um, 
as we're as we're coming out of the true pandemic and and now kind of leveling ourselves out is the COVID testing. And I think there's so much going on with COVID testing. We have been providing it for the community, every single one of our communities regionally um, in our drive-through centers. But I think there's still a lot of questions for people that did not have symptoms. And, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the COVID testing with you and what you can maybe educate our population on. Sure, absolutely. But I want to preface that by saying it is very extremely important. It is critical. Listeners understand the importance of three basic components as we reopen. Sticking to social distancing, uh, keeping the distance of at least six feet between yourself and the other individual next to you. Ensuring that you are masked um, at all times, wearing a mask, especially in public, because we're all in this together. And we all have to take care of each other. And while an individual may be asymptomatic, not have any symptoms, a mask will ensure that those viral particles don't spread to somebody who might be vulnerable, who might be elderly, who might have medical comorbidities and may be in the proximity of that individual. So let's do our part. Let's make sure that we stick to social distancing as we reopen, we wear masks. And the third element is frequent hand washing. If you don't have access to soap and water, running water, then use a sanitizer, hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol in it. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about testing. So there are two, two large buckets that I want the listeners to be aware of. One is the diagnostic COVID testing, right? This basically means that a doctor orders, a provider can order a test to see whether or not you have COVID-19, active COVID-19 infection. The other bucket is the antibody test. Antibody tests, basically, they check your blood by looking for antibodies, which can show if you had a past infection with the virus that causes COVID-19. What are antibodies? Antibodies are proteins. They help fight off infections and usually provide protection against getting that disease again. So that's called immunity. Um, Antibodies are disease-specific. So if I develop antibodies against um, measles, and that would not be protective for COVID-19. That would not be protective for mumps. So they're disease-specific. Um, what we do know, as we learn more about this novel coronavirus, COVID-19, um, we, we, we do know that having a positive antibody test basically tells us that the individual had an infection in the past. That's about it. We still, the science is still hazy on how long the immunity lasts for and what that really means and whether an individual will be um, uh, immune from reinfection. Now, if this virus behaves like any other virus before it, yes, there will be some degree of immunity from reinfection. But what that means, we will find out in the months to come as as more data is available and as, as we learn more about this virus. And there are numerous clinical trials currently underway not only in this country, but around the world, looking at various elements and uh, some of the things that I just mentioned. So COVID-19 diagnostic testing um, for your listeners. It's, there are two categories for the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, and cdc.gov is a great resource. Um, you can also go to trinityhealthofne.org uh, for COVID-19-related uh, questions or concerns. But if you have symptoms, then those are people that are high priority. Uh, people without symptoms, 
um, may be prioritized by health departments, um, which includes um, public health monitoring, surveillance, screening of other asymptomatic individuals, according to state and local plans. So those are the two big buckets of testing. Um, Antibody testing is currently being rolled out. We do uh, hear um, through the CDC that not all antibody tests are accurate. It is extremely important that for your listeners, when you are requesting uh, an antibody test, that the antibody test has been approved by the FDA, um, and it's called emergency use authorization. So that's something that you need to ask your provider before they uh, send you to a lab to ensure that the lab is using a test, um, antibody test that is FDA approved. And why is that important? Because it increases the accuracy of that test. We have seen recent reports of the antibody test not being as accurate. You know, I feel as though, and it was this way early on, too, when we were doing our initial testing, that, you know, you want to make sure you're getting the test done, even, the you know, the diagnostic testing itself in, in a site that was, you know, accurate. And you were getting accurate information. And I think that you have to be so careful where you're going to go. And I would think with the antibody test, what would be fearful is that people would get a false sense of security. Absolutely. That's a really important point, Robin. And they, this is the reason why I said it needs to, you need, listeners need to be aware of FDA EUA approval for the test they're getting at a given lab. But also, serology test results, antibody test results should not be used to make decisions about um, either grouping people uh, in a residential environment um, or, you know, making making decisions on, okay, uh, you know, X, Y, Z, individual X, individual Y, individual Z are antibody positive, and they will be in a separate dorm or separate class or separate correctional facility. They should not be used to make decisions about returning people to the workplace. Um, we still have a lot to learn about this virus and how it behaves. Again, I go back to the point, a positive antibody test just will tell you that the individual has had COVID-19 infection in the past. Um, and again, in terms of the uh, some degree of immunity, but how long it lasts and what it really means, we will learn as we um, get to know more about the virus. We just don't know yet. We just don't know yet. We're still learning as we go. Every day Absolutely. we're learning. And that's why the foundation and to keeping a handle on this pandemic, until um, we have um, uh, more uh, credible, um, effective treatment options or a vaccine, is social distancing, masking, right. and frequent hand washing. And, you know, we're seeing those pockets across the United States, too. You know, it's, there's different areas where, and we knew this was going to happen, that it would surge in other areas at a different point in time, just based on people moving around. Absolutely. That's right. You know, so we can't think that this is going away, you know. And, you know, again, you know, this weekend I was so fearful as the state reopened right before Memorial Day. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> it's going to just, you know, everybody just wants to go. Everybody's stir crazy. We're social. We're social people. You know, we're social by nature. So it's very hard. You know me, Doc. I'm a hugger. This has been tough for me. <laughs> and it's That's really right. hard. It's Vir- really hard. Virtual hugs for now, Robin. <laughs> virtual hugs. And this okay, too, this really too shall pass. I am confident 
that we will be able to overcome this pandemic. Uh, we've seen pandemics in the past. The most, um, uh, b- the biggest pandemic prior to this that took so many lives, uh, anywhere from 30 to 50 million people died, was the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. Right. And back then, there was emphasis on social distancing as well. So it's important we, do, we all do our part. And like I mentioned earlier on the show, we're all in this together. So you may, you may not feel like you're sick, um, but data indicates that up to 35% of people may be asymptomatic, and will not, right. which means they will not exhibit any clinical signs or symptoms of COVID-19 disease, but they are able to transmit that infection. Hence, social distancing, masking, and frequent hand washing. I find I am continuously re-educating people around me to not let their guard down, but not to be crazy either. But don't let your guard down. Just learn to live differently for a while, you know, and maintain, wear a mask, you know, do the smart thing, wash your hands, you know, do the best you can. I think the hardest part has been just for families to get themselves back together. But you do it slowly and safely. Absolutely. I agree 100%. So I, I don't want to keep you all night, but there is one more piece I would like to touch on before we let you go. And it's a huge thing that we're really, um, we've been involved in at Trinity Health, and it's the plasma therapy that's part of the treatment for COVID. Can we talk a little bit about that and what that looks like? Because it's Absolutely. pretty big for so- us. <laughs> For sure. So um, in March, we found out from a major American journal, um, a case series of five cases coming out of China where uh, folks had used convalescent plasma in patients with severe COVID-19 disease. What is convalescent plasma? So this is a component of the blood. It's like a blood transfusion. And it basically contains antibodies. And antibodies, again, are those proteins that are present in the blood that fight off infections. They're like cops. So these antibodies, which are particular against COVID-19, specific for COVID-19, are able to recognize the, uh, the, the virus. So the basic premise here for the convalescent plasma uh, uh, treatment option is that these antibodies, when given from a patient who has recovered to a patient who is battling for his or her life or is critically ill in the hospital will help them fight that virus. And we applied uh, towards the end of March for FDA approval to be a clinical site, to do our own trial, clinical trial. We were the fourth system uh, um, in the country to get that approval and authorization from the FDA, uh, which we're very proud of because we were able to offer this uh, convalescent plasma to our patients, but more importantly, be able to study and make sure that, is this something that works? We've seen convalescent plasma that has worked as way back as the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 when it was used. Since then, it's been used uh, for uh, during the Ebola, H1N1, H5N1 uh, flu pandemic. Um, it was used in SARS in Hong Kong and China uh, 20 years ago. So there's been benefit when given uh, to our patients. And we are very encouraged by the results that we see at Trinity Health of New England and um, the ability to offer um, a tool that will hopefully help fight this virus is, is incredibly satisfying. 
We've also been at the forefront in terms of remdesivir, and I want to give a shout-out and acknowledgement to the state of Connecticut and the state of Massachusetts, the governors for both states, and their teams have been instrumental in, in helping us procure remdesivir and ensure that we have remdesivir, which is a antiviral medication which has been shown in a study um, done at the NIH that it can reduce the period of symptoms a patient may have with uh, COVID-19. So we're extremely um, grateful to be able to get both of these treatment modalities um, uh, for our patients. When we talked about the antibody, that would not, and I just want to make sure we clarify it. So if someone um, tests positive for the antibody, that wouldn't necessarily make them someone that could donate plasma. So so there's a criteria for it, and it will be found on our website. But um, the basic premise here is uh, the individual, in order to be a donor, would need to have a positive COVID-19 test recovered from COVID-19, be at least 14 days since then, and then they come in for testing and we would test them again for COVID-19, but we would also test their blood for antibody levels. They, okay. they, are, they need to have antibodies as a, at a certain level to ensure mm-hmm. that um, they have enough antibodies to be able to uh, be a donor, and then that unit, two units are transfused into a patient who is critically ill in the hospital. I wanted to make sure we clarify that because I've had that question, which is why I've asked that. I said, you know, I want to make sure that we clarify. You don't normally say, oh, I need to go donate my blood now because I have the antibodies. You have to meet that criteria to be able to qualify so that you can help another person. That's right. So the study itself, how long um, will we be running? How long does the study run for? So we had a certain number of individuals that we were able to enroll. We uh, requested for um, increasing that number, which the uh, FDA promptly provided. Uh, we are looking at uh, our data currently and, and uh, hope to get some uh, good results out um, soon. But we will continue this treatment modality and continue offering it to our patients. Doc, do you know much about where we're at with a vaccine? Great question, and it's a question that I get asked frequently. So (laughs) as with everything COVID-19, things change on a very frequent basis. So there are over 100 candidates for vaccine across the globe. This is probably, these are unprecedented times. I don't remember a single time um, where so many different countries were working together in collaboration in finding a vaccine. Uh, There are some candidates that are ahead of the game where human trials are currently taking place. Um, That includes um, a vaccine trial that's currently underway in the United States, but there are also uh, two separate studies that are pretty advanced um, in phase three, um, the four phases. So phase three of the vaccine trial in England, um, led by Oxford University and the Imperial College of London. So We eagerly await results from those trials to see see whether there's a benefit um, for the for the vaccine for vaccine candidates that they're um, trying to to put together. Now, I do want to mention that usually, uh, normally, this is a very long, drawn out process because of the safety efficacy that goes into vaccine production, and it can take up to a decade. So we have really been in 
for lack of a better term, pandemic speed in terms of trying to get something out which would um, enable us to fight this uh, virus. It's, you know, I think that as soon as something like this happens, I think that's the first thing. Well, they have to get a vaccine for it. It has to happen right away. And I don't think the general population truly understands that you can't put out, again, a false sense of security with a vaccine that's not going to be effective. That's like when we do a flu vaccine that doesn't attack the, the virus that is actually the virulent one during the season. That's right. That's why it's really important to ensure that any vaccine candidate goes through the necessary trial phases to ensure that not only is it safe, that it doesn't have any side effects, significant side effects, I should say, but also the effectiveness, its efficacy, to make sure that it is able, in fact, indeed, to prevent COVID-19 disease. So, Doc, we have covered so much information. I can't thank you enough for for joining me tonight and being part of this conversation on COVID-19 and beyond, as we say, um, in healthcare. And if you had to leave our audience with with a few things, what would that be? Um, that we have, so a number of things I'd like to say. First, I'm honored to be on the show. Thank you for having me, Robin. Um, oh, Doc, please, thank you for coming on. For sure. Please stick to social distancing, masking, along with frequent hand-washing as we reopen. It's very tempting to think, oh, you know, it's, it's great, 80 degrees out there, the sun's shining, and sometimes we drop, you know, we drop our guard down. Please stick to some of the basic elements that will help fight this pandemic. Um, the other thing is if you need medical care, where the Trinity Health of New England is there for you. We're there through a virtual care platform that's available on our website, www.trinityhealthofne.org um, and we're also our facilities are COVID we have designated COVID free zones we're taking all precautions um, mandated by CDC uh, and um, the, the hospitals are safe for um, our communities to seek care thank you so much and you directed everyone to our website and we should say that our website is brand new So it's going to look a little different for those of you that have been users of our website, but it is incredibly user-friendly, and it gives you incredible options to learn more about COVID-19. It has our hotline available because our community hotline for COVID-19 is still up and active, which is 888-786-2790. We do have a whole section on the coronavirus and community resources. And then there's a whole platform um, that Dr. Hussein mentioned, which is our virtual care platform. And definitely um, go into that and, and, and utilize that because it's a great way to access care and explore the system. So, Doc, thank you again so much for joining me tonight. It was an honor to have you on the program. So, Dr. Sayed Hussein, Senior Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer of Trinity Health of New England, and one of my bosses, too. I have to say that. Have a good night. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Doc. So I want to thank everybody um, for joining us tonight. There is a lot of information that we shared tonight, for sure. Um, And I want to welcome everyone to, or invite everyone to go to that website, trinityhealthofne.org, COVID-19 and beyond. There's a whole section there. You can learn more um, on the coronavirus and what we're doing. There's that hotline that's available there, 888 786 
888-242-2790. We also have a section on there on find a doctor, looking for a specialty is on there. Um, we have a whole platform for just patients um, and also a whole platform on health and wellness. So, you know, go on our website, trinityhealthofne.org. It connects you to all five of our uh, hospitals throughout the region, which is really exciting to learn more about us. So I want to thank everyone for joining me tonight. I know we're ending a few minutes early, um, but we had a full pack show and we uh, didn't take a break. So I felt like it was really important to go um, right through. So thank you so much for joining me. And I will be back in two weeks with definitely some more information on um, whatever you need from our community and what we're doing with COVID-19 and beyond. And hopefully we will in two weeks be at another better place and have been able to socially distance safely. So thank you, Robin Sills, St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. Have a great weekend and stay safe. 